Well, today we are in Revelation 19. If you have a Bible or device, you can open up to Revelation 19. I'm calling this sermon A Wedding and a Warrior. And today we're going to hit 19. And chronologically, Revelation, chronologically is difficult in Revelation, but the last week we talked about 17 and 18, and those are kind of an interlude. So this would kind of follow chronologically right from 16. And so if you're just joining us, welcome to the heart of Revelation. Uh, We're in the midst of it, and it's a good thing. Uh, Weddings have always been a part of our society as people. They are celebrated in every culture throughout all of time, and the way that they're celebrated might be changed uh, dramatically based on culture and place, but they're always a part of our story as a people. I do weddings quite a bit now as a pastor, and I'm always amazed people that spend like four years planning their wedding, they spend like the cost of a brand new SUV on their wedding, and it's just crazy to me. My wife and I planned our wedding in four months, and we did the entire thing for like $5,000, and that's how to do it, because... These couples that are like, we're going to get married like three Junes from now. I'm like, that's insane. What are you talking about? That's not at all how this is supposed to work. And so I should say my wife planned our wedding in four months. Uh, I just sat around hoping that she would not realize that she was too good for me and call it off. And so that was our, that was our wedding. That was uh, almost 19 years ago and a few pounds ago for me. And uh, I did smash cake in her face. She smashed cake in her face, in my face. And then her father and his best friends tackled me and smashed an entire cake into my face. And I smelt frosting in the back of my nasal passages for about three weeks. (laughs) It was awesome. In many ways, we had a very standard wedding, a nice ceremony with bridesmen and groomsmen, vows and rings and all of that. And We had a reception with delicious food, but there were three things other than cake up my nostril that really jumped out to me about our wedding that I don't think were typical. We got married in August in Redding, California. If you've ever been to Redding, California, the summers there are hot. On our wedding day, it was over 100 degrees in the shade, and we did all of our photos outside. And so, thankfully, these photos aren't super high quality, or you would see that I am completely dripping in sweat in this photo. We don't have any of these photos, like, hanging up in our house, because I'm just disgusting in all of them. And all my friends are in suits, and they're disgusting. And so it was just hot. Another thing that was weird about our wedding, we had over 400 guests at our wedding, which I would not recommend. My wife grew up in a large church. Both of her mom and dad were on staff at that church. And so 400 was the whittled down, these are the people that would hate us for the rest of our lives if we don't invite them to our wedding list. Maybe 25 of them were there for me. 375 plus were just people that my wife had known her entire life. And so we had all these people. It's hot. It's crazy. And then the third thing that really jumps out at me, and this is the funniest thing about our wedding to me, is a family friend had made a beautiful cake for us. And it was sitting in the middle of this giant table that had Costco sheet cakes all around it. Because, of course, you have all the guests eat the Costco sheet cakes. 
and you leave the beautiful cake in the middle, and then, you know, after the wedding, you, you take that, and you have family eat it, and you take that top piece, and you freeze it, and you eat it a year later, blah, 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 all those things. Well, unbeknownst to us, we left for our honeymoon, and after the wedding, my father-in-law and his sister dropped the entire cake in the parking lot. We only found out because when we got back from the wedding, there was this smushed mass of cake in our freezer that was at one point the very beautiful topper of our cake, and we heard the whole story. And so a lot of crazy things happened. It was an amazing day, and I'm thankful that there's so many parts of it that I look back on and I laugh and I think about all those things. And, and this is what we do with weddings, right? It's, it's a momentous occasion in our lives that we look back and we remember those things. And I believe this is one of the reasons why God uses this idea of marriage so often in the Bible when we're talking about our, the church's relationship with Jesus, because it is something that is that important that you remember it for the rest of your life. And so God uses this metaphor of marriage over and over again. Before this wedding that we're going to read about today, there's an interesting song in the very beginning of Revelation 19. And you don't hear many songs like this because one Bible scholar calls it a song of doom. This is like death metal, right? Doom. Revelation 19, 1 through 5 follows immediately after the declaration that Babylon is going to be utterly destroyed. And so if you have your Bible, read with me. Verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. So right after this declaration of the destruction of all of Babylon and that entire world system, we see that there are voices crying out to God, and they're crying out because of his justness and his righteousness. And so it's an odd song because it's a song of doom, but it's also a song of rejoicing, rejoicing in the doom of Babylon. It's not that they're rejoicing in the death of people, but they're rejoicing that God is good and just, and he's destroying all that is evil and is destroying the nations. And so they sing this song, and in this song there's a word that is probably very familiar to you, hallelujah. Have you ever been in a church where people just yell out, hallelujah? That's not really our church, although I think it'd be awesome. Do it. Here's what's interesting, and I didn't know this till this week. This is the first and only time in the New Testament that this word is used. It's all throughout the Old Testament. We read about hallelujah, which literally means praise Yahweh, praise the Lord, it's used all through the Old Testament, but nowhere in the New Testament until Revelation 19, almost the very, very end. It's almost as if God was waiting for this moment. All throughout church history, he's waiting for the moment 
when the kingdom of God is about to come fully to use this word, hallelujah, praise Yahweh. And it's for the righteous judgment of those who have spilled the blood of his people. Praise God that you are just and good. And then we see also, this is the last time, if you've been following through Revelation with us, we've looked at these 24 elders and the four living creatures multiple times. This is the last time that we're going to see them in the book of Revelation. And they're doing what they always do. They're praising and worshiping God. If you want to be the kind of person that God surrounds himself with, be the kind of person that is continually praising and worshiping him for his glory and his justness and his righteousness. These are the people who are seated around God, the people and the creatures. And I know that's not always easy to do. But in the midst of all this craziness, they are still crying out praise to God for his holiness and his righteousness and his glory. Now we get to this wedding. This is the wedding that all of creation has been waiting for. It's the whole story of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is building towards this crescendo. So if you have your Bible device, read with me. Verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the land. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Again, this wedding ceremony starts out with a hallelujah crying out that God is holy and that he reigns, that he is worthy of glory. The word glory in the Bible, in the, in the Old Testament, is kabod. It's the weight. It's all that God encompasses, and he's worthy of all of this. And this time has come where the Lamb, if you have your Bible, you might notice that the word Lamb is capitalized. It's talking about Jesus. The marriage of the Lamb and his bride, and the bride is us. It is the church. It is his bride that he has been preparing for all of time, and is the fulfillment of the entire church age for 2,000 years, the bride has been preparing for the groom, Jesus. Now, marriage looked different in biblical times than it does now. Oh, very different. It started out with betrothal. I'm sure you've heard that. But couples were usually betrothed to one another. This is kind of like engagement. This was set up by parents, and so you just hoped that your parent wouldn't stick you with somebody that you obviously didn't want to be married to. And so you get betrothed, and this was a binding declaration. You could only get out of betrothal with an official writ of divorce. And so it was as if you were married, but you weren't married, but you were expected to be faithful, 
completely to that person. They belonged to one another, and any unfaithfulness would have been considered adultery. And this time of betrothal was a time of preparation for both of them. The groom would go and he would prepare a place for he and his bride to live. He would prepare a life for them to have together, and she would prepare herself to be a wife. She would prepare the wedding garments. She would prepare herself for when he would come to get her and take her for the ceremony. And so then they have the ceremony. But she didn't know exactly when that was going to be. He could show up at pretty much any time and say, I'm ready. And she needs to be prepared at all times for when he is going to come to claim his bride. Eventually he would come. They would begin a procession back to the bride-to-be's home to get her and bring her to the ceremony. And once he came for her, they would go and they would take their vows and they would be married. But then they would have festivities. And I guarantee you've never been to a wedding party like they did it back then. Because now if the wedding party goes for like four hours, you're like, I'm really tired and I don't want to dance anymore and I'm going home. They would party for like a week. It was a party. It was like the biggest thing in all of social gatherings, right? They don't have the ESPYs to go to. They have weddings. This was where everyone cut loose and had a good time. And so they go and these parties would last for a week and the bride and groom and all of their guests would celebrate the fullness of this marriage, this thing that they had been waiting for their whole lives. And everybody in their lives would celebrate with them and give praise to God that God had brought them together. And this is all a picture of the relationship that Jesus has with his bride and what is happening throughout Revelation. Jesus is claiming his bride and then throwing this marriage supper, this party, and he's inviting guests to the party. Now, there's different ways that people read this story. As you guys know, we've gone through Revelation. I've told you multiple times. There's 15 different ways that we can go with this. I'm going to give you my understanding. Some of you might disagree with that. That's okay. We can talk about it later. I'm going to tell you what this seems to mean to me, what it seems to look like. There's this betrothal part of the story. This is when Jesus first came. A couple thousand years ago, his father sends him to be a humble servant. He introduces the bride and the groom to be married, and he spends some time with his bride, and then he goes back home to prepare a place for us. The bride, the church, has spent the last couple thousand years preparing herself for this wedding ceremony with her groom. And then the ceremony is going to happen. At some point in Revelation, we've talked about this, Jesus raptures, takes up the church, and there's the ceremony. He takes them to the place that he has prepared for them. And now they have their ceremony, and we get to be with Jesus together with our groom. Notice that in Revelation 19, we're talking about the festivities which take place after the ceremony, not the ceremony itself. And then there will be this supper, the celebration of the wedding. This is the festivities and the object of what we're looking at in Revelation 19. And notice, 19, this chapter, is not about the bride herself. It's not about coming to get the bride. It's about inviting the wedding guests that will be 
invited to take part in this eternal heavenly celebration. And so we say, well, who are the wedding guests? If the church is the bride and Jesus is the groom, then who are the ones that are being invited to the wedding? Well, I believe it's these tribulation saints that we've been talking about, the ones that have gotten saved during this tribulation time. And maybe some Old Testament scholars say maybe the wedding guests are also the Old Testament believers who have now come into the kingdom of God. Don't know exactly how all that works, but this whole metaphor is being played out as we are the bride of Christ. God has just spent chapters and chapters of Revelation sending witnesses and evangelists and even angels declaring to the world and inviting people to the party. Those who were unrepentant and didn't want to turn back to God, he's crying out, come back to me, be saved. And this was their last chance for his patience finally runs into its end. In the next part, verses 11 through 16, we're going to see Jesus come. And it's an interesting part of the Revelation story because the whole story has been building towards this. And then it happens, and it's almost anticlimactic because you've been waiting for this epic, crazy battle. And that's not what happens. Read with me. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That's a fancy word for crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we see heaven open up, just like he did in Revelation chapter 4. If you remember back then, heaven opened up, but it opened up for John to go into heaven. This time, heaven opens up for Jesus to come out. And all of this has been building towards this moment. Jesus comes back, and he's riding on a white horse. And we read that, and we just say, well, cool, horses are cool. But for them, this had significant meaning. For somebody to ride in on a white horse is a declaration of victory. If a Roman general went and destroyed his enemies, he would come back to Rome riding on a white stallion with his enemies in tow, chained. Jesus comes on a white horse and he's declaring, before the battle has even taken place, he's declaring, it's already won. I ride on a victorious white stallion. I've already won. And then Jesus' titles are important here. Did you notice all of the titles that are used to describe him? Faithful and true. Harkens back to Revelation chapter 3. The word of God is in John chapter 1 verse 1. There's a secret name which nobody knows but him. Do you know what that is? Nobody knows but him. You guys were really excited. You're like, you're going to tell us? No, we don't know. Then he calls him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is in Revelation. All of these titles are saying, this is 
Jesus. This is the one we have been waiting for. This is everything that the people of God have been waiting for. All of these titles declare that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the one true living God. What's interesting is this is exactly who the Jewish people were waiting for. One of the reasons that they rejected Jesus as their Messiah was they were looking for this guy. They wanted the one who came in on a white horse and brought victory and destruction to their enemies. And so when he comes first as a humble servant, as a baby, they're like, that's not what we wanted our Savior to look like. If they just saw this one, when Jesus comes back, they would say, ah, that's it. That's what we've been waiting for. The descriptions of him are important as well. Look at these amazing descriptions of Jesus when he finally comes back. Eyes like a flame of fire. Nothing can escape his sight. On his head are many diadems. These are all the crowns of the world. If you remember back earlier in Revelation, it says that the dragon had five crowns and the beast had seven crowns. Jesus has all the crowns. He's not just ruling over five nations or seven nations. He's ruling over all of them. He is the King of kings and the Lord of the lords, and he has all the crowns. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That sounds pretty hardcore, doesn't it? Some people read that and they're like, well, yeah, that's talking about the blood of the cross. It's not. If you read back to Isaiah, all the way back in the Old Testament, there is this piece of prophecy in Isaiah chapter 63 that talks about this day coming in the distant future. And it says this, Who is the one that comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trod in the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart." And my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Jesus is robed in a robe dipped in the blood of the enemies, the ones who have spilt the blood of his followers, of his martyrs. And he has gone and he says, I have trodden the wine press. This is a difficult message for us because we're like, I like Jesus happy, holding a sheep with his Fabio hair. We are uncomfortable many times with the Jesus who is robed in the blood of his enemies. But we've been talking about this for weeks. This is the answer to the prayers of the church for generations. How long, O oh Lord, will you stand for these people who have murdered your, your children? And eventually he comes and he destroys those enemies. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations. And this is interesting because this is not a literal sword. It's, it's from his mouth. It's his word. The very word of Jesus is all the weapon he needs to destroy the nations. Did you catch that? We want to turn it into this giant fiery sword. It, it's, just, it's just his mouth. 
And notice, it's the only weapon that he needs. And if you notice, the armies that are described in there, they aren't armed. It says they have on fine linen. They're like just kind of hanging out with Jesus and they're like, go get him, Jesus. He's the only one with the weapon and the weapon is his word. And the armies, I believe, are us. It's the church. It's the people returning with their bridegroom in victory over the broken world. It's the wedding guests and the angels in heaven. It's everybody coming with Jesus back and seeing him have his victory. And then at the end of that, we read this title again, King of King and Lord of Lords. I like to joke that this is the verse that proves that tattoos are okay. Because it says on his thigh he had, but okay. It's probably not what it means, but he will reign over all the kings of the earth. He will be the Lord over anybody who thinks that they are in charge of anything. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. And chapter 19 ends with John describing this battle that we have been building towards for chapters and chapters. And I don't know about you, but I read Revelation. I'm like, oh, this battle's going to be good. This is going to be like the end of an action movie. It's going to be amazing. And then in one paragraph, it's just kind of over. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse, and against his army. And the beast was captured. That's where there was supposed to be a battle. Right there, 19 and 20. You see that? No battle. Verse 20, and the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who was in his presence, who had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's the whole thing. We've been building towards this epic battle, and it's just like, and then the beast lost. That's the power of God. Whenever a word is repeated a lot in a Bible chapter, we should pay attention to it. The word flesh if you notice, is used six times in that one paragraph. Flesh is often spoken of in the Bible as speaking about the sinful nature of humanity. And Jesus comes to destroy the flesh. To destroy the power that the flesh has over the world. Revelation is letting us know that the time of flesh in this world is coming to an end. And Jesus is bringing destruction upon all who live according to the flesh. And then the beast, the Antichrist, and all of his minions, his supporting kings, gather together to make war upon Jesus. But in that anticlimactic moment, he's just like, you're done. He's captured. And then he and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, which is hell. And they are the first people sent to hell. It's one thing we misunderstand. We think 
hell is full of Satan and all of his minions right now. It's not. We've talked about this before. Hell is prepared for Satan and his minions. But until this happens, it's empty. These are the first ones who are sent there. There's this whole other idea in the Bible of Hades, a, a preparing place for those who have turned against God. But this final destination, hell, is only opened at this point. And then everyone else, it says, it just says it so matter of fact, everyone else is slain by just the word of Jesus. The wine press is trodden. There was all this buildup and the beast and the false prophet turning the gears of society and dragging people further and further away from God, building armies. They, they do all of these things and then just in a moment, the power of God overwhelms them and says, it's done. You're captured. Because there was never a chance. There was never a chance that anything could stand up to the glory of God. Revelation gave us a spoiler alert in the first chapter on this. Do you remember Revelation chapter 1, verse 8? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. If you were with us in chapter 1, you might remember I talked about the word pantokrator, because I like that word. In Greek, the Almighty God is pantokrator. He tells us right in Revelation 1, I am the Almighty. No weapon fashioned against me shall stand. Right? Over and over, you can go all through these verses. There is nothing that could hold power over God. And so the beast and the false prophet and all of us, they're, they're building, saying we can fight God, just like the people in Tower of Babel. We can build a tower and get to God and we can battle against him. And, and all of it, it always just falls flat because he's like, you're not paying attention. I am the Pantocrator. You cannot stand against me. He says right from the outset, I was here before you had a beginning. I'm going to be here long after what you think is the end. I am the Almighty God. And after everything in this universe is gone, I will still be here. He is the Almighty God of the universe. And even though all of that is true, this is what blows me away. Even though all that's true, that he is the pantocrator, that he is the one that can demolish all of the enemies of Satan in a word, he still loves you. He still loves me. And he sends his son to die and to rise again so that we can spend that eternity with him. Love you. He sends witnesses and evangelists and angels so that everybody in the world has every opportunity to understand that he longs for them to be with him, that Jesus wants you to be a part of his church, his bride. He is still right now building that place for us and waiting for the bride to prepare herself which means more and more people coming to know him and to be a part of his bride he is not willing that any shall perish second peter tells us but that we should reach repentance there's a hard truth in this chapter there's a lot of them but one of them comes down 
to this. There are two meals in this chapter. The first is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus will gather his bride and they will invite the guests to the wedding and together they will all celebrate the holy union of the kingdom of God that is beginning forever and ever. The second meal in this chapter is called the Great Supper of God where scavenger birds will feast on all that is left of a broken and sinful world that has turned from God and refused his grace and mercy. And here's the difficult truth. Everyone in this world will be at one of those meals. You will partake in one of these suppers. It will either be the wedding feast of the Lamb, where you are a part of the bride that is celebrating eternity with God, or you will be a part of the carry-on that the scavenger birds are eating. I know that's a difficult word, but it is the truth. My prayer is that we would understand this message of revelation, that through all of the things that we don't understand, things that are difficult, things that people have been trying to grasp onto for thousands of years, the simple truth is this. The gospel was preached throughout the world so that you would be part of the bride of Christ. And if not, you're lost. So my prayer this morning is that you would take that seriously. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior yet, that you would put some serious thought into that. What do I want to do with my life? What do I want to do for eternity? And if you need to talk about that, if you need prayer for that, me or one of the elders, one of the prayer partners would love to pray with you this morning. We would love to hear what you're going through, hear what God's doing in your heart because we don't want anybody in here to be part of that second meal. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much that you, in all of your perfection and glory and almightiness and weight, and all of those things somehow still are even aware of my existence, let alone you love me that you love us and you long for us to be with you in your kingdom, to be your bride. What an amazing blessing that is. And so God, would you help all of us to understand that and to pursue you in your kingdom. And God, if there's anybody in here this morning who is not yet calling you Lord and Savior, would you reach into their hearts and make yourself so clearly known right now? Would you put something in them that they just cannot possibly deny who you are? We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name.